0: We're going to kick Todd off here in a moment. <clears throat> hey, everybody, Pre Accident Investigation Podcast. I'm Todd Conklin. And we're here. We find ourselves here once again. We've been here before, unless you're a first time listener. And if you're a first-time listener, let's just start by saying I'm sorry. I want to apologize to you. I'm sorry. Because this is part three of a three-part series of a speech I gave in Virginia Beach at a meeting called the Community of Human and Organizational Learning. And you are coming in at the very tail end. There you go. But if you're not a first-time person, we've been here before, and it's always great. How is it going? Anything exciting? Have you done anything noteworthy? So let's make an assignment. You want to? For all of us, I'm in. I'm in both feet. Let's do something noteworthy before we get together again next week. Not for the baby podcast, not for the, the safety moment. It's, you can actually have that one as a pass. But before we get together for the big mama, let's do something exciting. Let's have Let's have some story we can share. You clearly heard the story of my robber, which was quite. That seems scary when you say it, but it, it didn't feel that scary when it happened. It should have, but it didn't. I think because I was the big shock to me is when I got my bicycle stolen. Because I loved that bicycle, I don't know if you could tell. I loved it. It which is stupid. It's just a thing, but I really did like it, and I had a lot of time with it. That one, I felt violated. The one where I found the robber in my house? Eh, not so much. Eh, get out. Oh, what are you doing? You ate all my half and half. Or you, yeah, I ate, drank. I don't know what you do with half and half. Except putting it on cereal seems incredibly luxurious. If you don't know what half and half is for the international viewers, uh, you know, look it up. And you'll find you'll find an exciting world. Where cream and milk is mixed together, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yummy, yummy, yummy. So this is part three. What do you think about part two? I told you there's a big discussion around that relationship between really free agency and determinism or or mistakes, error, choice, blame, all those things kind of fit together, and then we get to actually move on and talk, once we get that's that's the heavy lifting, in my opinion. I could be wrong on this, but once we do that, then we can get on and talk really about learning, about context, which is pretty easy to talk about because of the example I use, and then leadership matters. And that's really where today pops in. So today is really the conclusion, but what it really is is a discussion on how leaders react matters. So something weird happened when, when these principles came out, Some people, I think, with good intentions um, drifted these to a weird place. You know, it said leadership's response to failure matters. And I had some people say, well, it's everybody's response to failure matters. Well, okay, yeah, um, but don't you understand that when you say everybody, you're saying nobody, and that really the one we want to focus on, the one that really makes the biggest difference to the sustainability and future improvement of an organization, is how leadership responds to failure. Because that's really a telling piece of information. So when you say everybody response to failure matters, that's just crap talk. Just nothing. That means nothing. When you say leadership's response, then that actually puts that accountability. Remember, accountability provides clarity. That puts accountability to the response on the leader. And that makes a huge difference. So that really is the origin of this next part. I mean, that, that's where this all comes from. And so it's kind of interesting. We'll, we'll, see, um, we'll see what you think. You want to you listen to it and see? Yeah, let's do So now, without any further ado, this is part three. If you've not heard part one and part two, maybe it's a good idea to go back and listen to one and then two. Maybe. I mean, it seems like that might be a good idea. Um, but not necessary. I can't tell you how to live your life. You are in charge of how you live your life. If you don't want to, don't. But nonetheless, what's going to happen next is the exciting conclusion, the very special conclusion to the three-part pre-accident investigation podcast. This is the end of the talk already in progress. That leads to principle three. Now, this one's interesting because... Principles three is really the one that talks about this idea of organizational learning. And learning is what you guys do for a living. In fact, it's, the, it's present in the name of the organization, and it's a big part of how improvement happens. I would suggest, although the research on this is pretty rich, I would suggest that improvement is always a function of the organization's ability to learn. But we're now asking organizations to learn differently. And the ability to learn differently is really the challenge that we want to have. And we're moving organizations from traditional learning methods, which were often pretty didactic, pretty leader-focused, classically Tayloristic, planners are smarter than workers, Leaders are smarter than planners. Therefore, ideas that come from the above and down are always going to be richer, better, faster, quicker than ideas that come from below up, right? It's classic Taylorism. What's amazing is that the ability to learn differently is a direct function of that first principle idea. Remember that we limit our learning by our solutions. The enemy of the question is always the answer. And that as soon as we think we know the answer, we no longer spend time thinking about the problem. And in an organization that is highly attuned to fixing things, right? Engineering-centric organizations, manufacturing-centric organizations, scientific and research, those organizations really take their pride and measure their progress by fixing problems as fast and as quickly as they can. And so what happens is, is we oftentimes shorten our ability to learn in order to jump to the fix, because fixing is always sexier than learning. It just is. Our challenge as a group is to make learning sexy. And that's why I'm wearing the big yellow shirt. I mean, I think it really works for me at every single level, and I hope you agree. The biggest challenge we have is based upon the idea that knowing more makes the organization smarter. So the transverse of that is knowing less makes the organization dumber. The only way you'll know more is to know more i mean it's it's just it's just the way it works i mean it's 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 how the world is aligned you cannot know more by knowing less you can only know more by knowing more which means we have to at some level really build a desire a need for the organization to get smarter and, and the way we can do that i think Is a real challenge. And if you look around the room and take a moment and look around, you're in the presence of greatness because you're in the presence of organizations, probably sitting next to you, in fact, probably your own, that have really spent time understanding and make sure they've built ways to build feedback back into the system. So you hear about Monday morning calls or weekly calls, or after-action reviews, right? or learning from normal work, or investigating successes, or using learning teams. All of those are tools that actually help increase the amount of learning opportunity we have within the system. If I could change one thing in the whole world, it would be, well, there's a lot of things I would change in the whole world. Let's, let's, let's bring that down a notch the one thing I would really focus on would be redefining the term operational excellence. Because if you ask me to define what operational excellence is and to build a standard around it, what I would tell you is I would base that standard and that definition for operational excellence entirely on the organization's ability to learn from itself. And I would build a case at every level That said, if we want improvement, the way we get there is improve the way we learn from ourselves. The challenge is, is we desire seductively unambiguous information. In fact, our systems are set up to reduce ambiguity. And that's what we do. We hate ambiguity. Ambiguity drives us nuts. And so because we want seductively unambiguous information, and I'm going to say that again because I love saying that word, because we want seductively unambiguous information, what happens is we create systems that actually limit our ability to learn context-rich information, which is how we get into software programs in large organizations that force you to use a pull-down menu to choose a cause code I'm using DOE talk right now that is the lesser of all the evils and so suddenly our accounting systems are limiting our learning systems now I don't have a solution for that and I don't know what that looks like but I can tell you if if we're ever in a position where we have to choose an answer that we think is less inaccurate than all the other answers that we could choose from, that actually probably is a system that is causing us to not learn. And so I use all the time this picture. You've probably seen it before. And if you can, it's a van with 41 pallets or 61 pallets on top of it. What's interesting to me is asking a group of people what's wrong will almost always lead you back to these first principles ideas, Right bad guy, makes bad decision, makes bad choice, does dumb thing, right? Well, we can talk them through that. We can get them out of that. But ultimately, what we want to do is really focus on the fact that this is a pretty interesting challenge. And that no matter what happens, the one thing we can't say for sure is the guy who put those pallets on that van in Atlanta, he didn't accidentally do that. He didn't turn around and go, crap, I put 46 pallets on top of a van. This was a substantive technical, organizational, and operational act. And that's pretty powerful. So where does this take us? Well, it takes us to an area that is really interesting for us to talk about. Because our challenge is is to really go to this idea of the first principles. And when we're facing the ability to learn, the opportunity to learn, then one of the challenges we have is the realization that we want more and diverse information, not less and simple information. And where this really helped illustrate itself is when we started talking about VUCA. Now, I don't know how familiar you guys are with VUCA, but if you aren't familiar, it's definitely worth looking up, V-U-C-A. And VUCA comes from the military. In fact, it comes from the special forces. And it's a way they looked at understanding really complex operational environments with with high risk, which sort of defines the very work your company does. And VUCA is really an acronym for four distinct things, volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity. And the research they've done And the applied use of these VUCA principles is really worth your time because it says because the system is volatile, because we don't know what's going to happen next, we have to make quicker decisions faster realizing we can change, that we have sort of the ability to turn on a dime, right? Because the world is uncertain, we have to create certain capacity for uncertain outcomes, So when we go fishing, we take three forms of beer. We take your beer, we take my beer, and then we take a third selection of usually cheaper and warmer collective beer, right? That's creating capacity. We understand that pretty well, right? Complexity we've talked about before. Complex systems always fail at the couplings, and complex systems are devilish. They always want to fail, And then last but not least is the idea of ambiguity. And what ambiguity says is when facing the opportunity to learn, instead of circling the wagons and getting more defined and less information, what you do is reach out and actively seek diversity of information, diversity of opinions. I've said it for years. But one of the things that I welcome in any investigation, in any learning document that we create, is a differing professional opinion. Because you actually want diversity when uncertainty and complexity is high. And it seems counterintuitive. In fact, it seems like something that wouldn't even be normal. But I promise you guys that when complexity and uncertainty is high, If you reach out farther and get more and varied forms of information from your organization, you will have more information by which to make decisions. If you learn broader, then you get more and varied information as opposed to specific pinpoint learning, which traditionally when the organization's in shock, that's what it counts on. We don't ever want to build a situation where we limit learning. We always want to be able to learn. You know this story as well as I do. If you're doing an investigation and you finished up a series of questions with some workers and you're getting ready to push your chair back and leave and eat a donut, right? It's the perfect time. And as you push your chair back, one of those employees looks you in the eye and says, can I say one more thing? You're definitely going to sit back down. Because that next thing that is said, chances are really high, is going to be incredibly important to your ability to learn. And what they're going to tell you is something you didn't ask them. They're going to tell you something that you didn't imagine needed to be understood. They're going to create more diverse and varied information. And as Ron will tell you next, that's the secret to identifying those weak signals. Weak signals become strong after you find the burglar in your guest bed. There was no question that that duffel bag and roller suitcase in my driveway was a big fat warning sign. After. Because I'm always smarter after stuff happens. Beforehand, though, I really saw those as a problem that could be solved later. Now, that challenge is a big challenge. And and what it does is it helps us understand and it's really helped us align the need to learn from success. So I think, and you can tell me if I'm wrong, but I think one of the biggest changes that's happened in our profession as a community of learning professionals is the realization that what we've traditionally done is learn from failure and failure can teach us much. There's no question. Failure is a very, very important learning tool but it's also put us in a position where we're learning kind of what a system looks like when it fails. What we've had to do is really take the time to learn from normal work. What's happening when nothing bad's happening. That's a classic Eric Collenagel question. It's perhaps the most powerful question I can think to ask a group of senior leaders. I mean, I don't even know if there is a better question to ask a group of senior leaders than that question that that's ultimately an incredibly powerful question. But the reason it's powerful is because it force functions us as a learning organization to understand and describe what normal looks like. Now, why don't we do that? Why aren't we good at understanding success? Well, a big part of the reason is we have a lot of it and it's so normal that it kind of doesn't hit the radar screen. So you know the old squeaky wheel always gets the grease? Normal successful operations, which is mostly what you guys do all the time, every day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, except for leap year, 366 days, that's always present. And the, the thought of collecting normal data is pretty awesome because we really don't have the time, energy, or even the computer bandwidth to collect what normal looks like. But it is forcing us to really shift the way we think about moving forward. It's forcing us to really understand at a different level that we need to move some of our learning resources away from just understanding failure to looking at normal work, to predicting and understanding normal work, to understanding what keeps the system stable, what's happening when nothing bad's happening. And the tool that has been most powerful, at least in my world, is this one. When we shifted the question from the fundamental attribution error bias, which is who failed, to the much richer operational learning bias question, which is what failed, then what happened is we just got much, much better information. If you do nothing else, and I promise you there's a million things you can do, a million things you could do, but if you do nothing else, the one thing i tell you to do is do this. Get your organization and therefore the tools paperwork, systems, get them so they align towards starting with the system first and then the people second. Traditionally, what we do is look at the people first and the system second. But in fact, that's not the case. That gives us an opportunity To understand the context in which the event transpired, the context in which normal work happens, the context in which workers and clients interface, the context in which daily operations continually take place, and then ask the question, what creates that context in a successful way? Which takes us to the fourth principle. Now, you're starting to see a little drift here. Because the fourth principle is starting to look much more organizationally mature. And what's happened is as these new views have started to diffuse, we're starting to look differently at the organization. And that's the crazy thing about this, is as we get better, we're going to understand at a richer level what's going on. And one of the things is, is we've learned that behavior, worker behavior, is almost entirely a function of the organizational context. Now, that means... We have to design things differently. Things that never happen happen all the time. And the question I'd ask you is Are your workers exercising free will? Are they free agents in your organization? And remember, this goes back to the first principle to the whole discussion we have around mistakes. And if so, what role do you play in creating an environment where workers can succeed? So uh, let me ask this question of you What makes your highest performing, best team? your highest performing best team. What makes them that way? Why are they that way? What's going on? And what you're going to find is that in that best team, there is a context and expectation that actually drives how workers perform, how workers behave. And the very best example I can give you is this one. Now, I wouldn't answer this out loud, although I'm not in the room, so you can do anything you want to, but I wouldn't answer this out loud. I would use this more as a thought exercise, and here it is. Do you behave differently in a biker bar than you do in church? And the answer is probably yes. I don't know how many biker bars you go to. I mean, we can talk about that later. But the environment in which you are placed really helps set the expectations for how you perform. And so we can build environments where people can actually be much, much more effective. We can build environments where learning is not only a novelty. Learning is a normal outcome to operations. And if you look at high-risk teams, teams that do emergent work, rescue, Delta force, those kind of teams, you'll hear them talk about the expectations of things like an after action review. Right. And one of the things is, is that is a function of the contextual expectation that's placed on that group. This is pretty powerful because you hear it talked about a bunch. In fact, Jake talked about it a bit, or it was in the title of Jake's presentation This notion of psychological safety. And and when you think about psychological safety, I don't want you to think about psychological safety in such a way that it sounds like it's a, a warm fuzzy or my door is always open or free hugs are available here. I want you to think about psychological safety as an environment in which it's okay to have difficult conversations. In fact, when Amy Edmondson talks about psychological safety, what she talks about is how easy is it for you to disagree? How far can you push the conversation towards the edge and still feel like it's recoverable? And so one of the things that's so powerful about this idea, and you think about it when you think about culture, all the words, we have lots of words for this, is that what we're really talking about is what is the contextual environment in which the work happens. And so psychological safety itself is not an individual skill shared by an individual, really super good leader. Psychological safety is always a group dynamic. It always exists exists as a function of the group's context and the ability to make it okay to disagree. And if you think about it, and I think about this a bunch, I've worked in groups where it's been super okay to disagree. In fact, we had some great disagreements and got better because of it. I've also worked in organizations where it's not okay to disagree, and what's amazing is is the organizations where it was okay to disagree performed better than the organizations that were really mono thea- theatrical that, that that had one idea and didn't allow much disagreement. Which ultimately takes us to the fifth principle. And and this is the one that I think about the most, just because I think this one is the biggest representation of change. And if we go back to our first principle, safety is not the absence of bad things, it's the presence of good things. And we think about how this principle sort of pays into that first principle. This is pretty valuable. But it's a different level of maturity because the old principles were really focused at the worker level. The new principles seem to be much more organizational in nature. So the old principles aren't bad. They're still incredibly effective. The new ones are better at looking more holistically at the organization and it says simply how leadership respond matters. Now, I think some mistakes happened in this one. And that is that for a while we took the word leader out. We said how other people respond. Well, here's what I'm going to tell you. How other re- people respond does matter. There's no question about that. But that's way dumb. I mean, that's, the answer to that is, of course, how leaders respond specifically sets the color and sets the contextual tone for how the organization will move forward. How the leader responds determines whether the leader creates an environment where they improve or they don't improve. They either get even or get better. It's the old, when something bad happens, you can blame and punish or you can learn and improve, but you can't do both. And what we're asking organizations to do, and we've been doing this a while, is to simply lead differently. Now, the challenge is is that this is a conversation that we have to have. So go back to our secrets. We have to have this conversation with leaders based upon where the leader is, not where we want the leader to be. And so that challenge means that we have to change the way senior leaders, senior managers, senior bosses, harentes, jefes, lead their organization, and it's hard let alone changing the entire organization. And yet, I'm going to suggest if we don't change the way leaders think, we won't change the entire organization. And Gabe, my friend Gabe, who works in Locomotives, he said to me one day what is perhaps the best incredible comment I've ever heard. And he said the test they use in their organization is this. Are we giving leaders the correct data to ask the right questions. Are we giving our leaders the right learning product that creates curiosity in the right places so that leaders ask the right questions? Ultimately, this allows us to work differently, to create an opportunity to change. But it's based upon this idea of the first principles and upon the promise that we'll stop having conversations that make us dumber. What we want to do is build this first principle idea in as richly as we can. Safety is not the absence of accidents. Safety is the presence of capacity. We don't make systems better by taking bad things out of the system. We make systems better by putting good things in the system. And the only way we get to put good things in the system is by improving our ability to learn. And the only way we can learn better is by building on those first principles. That, my friends, is the message I wanted to share with you guys. I hope it worked. I miss being there. I want more than anything to be with you guys. This is such a fun conference. It's great. It's, it's, it's a super good way to get lots of content for the podcast. It's a great way to see everybody, hug everybody, laugh and smile. So do me a favor. Uh, the next time you're laughing or smiling, give one for me. Pour one on the ground for your homie because I wish I were there with you. I want to wish you the best of luck ever. Have as much fun as you possibly can and continue on this journey. Now you get to listen to the fabulous and gorgeous Ron Gant. Thanks, you guys. Thank you, Todd. You've done it. You made it through the entire three-part series. You've done it. Yeah, yeah. And now it's done. What do you think? I mean, I think it was worth it. It, It's a special thanks to all my advisors who said break it into three parts. Don't just do, I was going to just do one long one, but it had been really long. And then I thought, well, two parts would be interesting. Three parts kind of made sense. It divided itself nicely into three parts. So I think that worked well. That is the talk, man. You just heard it. That was it. Thanks for listening. Learn something new every single day. Have as much fun as you possibly can. Be kind to each other. Be good to each other. And for goodness sakes, you guys, be safe.